We have been in a series in the book of Luke, and we are going to continue here. We're probably going to take a break for a while and then wrap Luke up over the summer. We've been in the book of Luke for quite some time. Now, this week, we are going to jump forward. We're going to jump ahead. We are going to skip a couple chapters. We're going to, don't worry, we're going to come back and catch them. This is, as most of you know, the beginning of Holy Week, where Christians all around the world are celebrating um, the events that lead up to the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, amazing time as literally billions of followers of Jesus around the globe celebrate what Jesus did for us this week. And so we are going to look at a passage of Scripture here in a little bit um, from this week. And then when we hit that six or eight or ten weeks down the road, uh, we'll just skip over. So um, to get us where we're going to go here today, I want to I talk about something we often confuse in life. We're going to talk about a character here that we see in Scripture in a minute. But something that we do is that we oftentimes define God's love or God's care for us by our life circumstances. Too many times we look at our life circumstances and we either do this when things are good. Uh, we, you hear us saying things like, wow, I'm just so blessed, right? Things are good. Life's going good. And you feel like, wow, God is just so good. Maybe you've used that phrase. God is good. But then oftentimes when we're having circumstances and seasons where things aren't going our way, we often begin to view, if we're not careful, we begin to view our relationship with God. We begin to view our, our opinion of God through our life circumstances. And disappointment with life easily becomes disappointment with God. When your dreams aren't coming true, when it's not working out in life, when you can't get a break, when it seems to be working out for everybody else around you, but not for you. And after a while, you begin to assume that maybe God isn't good or maybe God isn't personal. Or perhaps for some of you, maybe you've even questioned and wondered, is there even a God at all to begin with? And see, there's a pattern I've seen in, in people's lives, and I think it's pretty common, and maybe you know someone that has gone through this pattern. Maybe you've had a season. In fact, maybe you're just coming back to church after a long season away and kind of checking out God, church, and the Bible, and the pattern in your life went something like this. Disappointment. You had a major disappointment in life. Some kind of big deal thing happened in your life, and disappointment ended up leading to disillusionment that you thought that life worked this way. You thought if, if you did things this way, God would do this. If I do A, God will do B or C. You know, if I raise my kids this way, this is how they're going to turn out. If I pray enough or if I give, this is how my finances are going to be, whatever that thing is. Or if I invest in this marriage, it's going to be amazing. And as long so, somewhere along the way, life didn't work that way. And before you know it, it turns into this disillusionment and disillusionment with God. And before you know it, that leads to doubt in your heart where I wonder if God really cares. I wonder if God is really good. And for some people even, I wonder if God is even real at all. And for so many, that goes on to lead to detachment where either they actually pull away from God or you actually pull away and say, you know what, I, I'm just not going to do that whole thing anymore. I'm not going to do the, the church thing anymore. And, and at the root of that is a disappointment with God. Or for some even, um, you know, it's like I said, it's, it's not believing in God, maybe, maybe even doubting that God exists at all. For others, it, it, 
works a little differently, but basically what happens is you just ignore God. You just push God sort of over to the corner of your life, put him up on a shelf, so to speak, and, and you know, every once in a while dust him off and, and, and you know, every once in a while throw up a prayer. But for the most part, you just completely ignore God and God has no real vital active place in your life anymore. Maybe you've been this way in the past. Maybe you're in this place now. Maybe you were mistreated by someone who said they loved God. Maybe you experienced a significant loss in your life. Maybe you had a physical challenge come and, and there wasn't an answer to that, right? Maybe in spite of trying so hard, it just hasn't worked. You tried and tried and it just hasn't worked. Maybe if you're honest today, there feels like there's a lot of distance between you and God right now. I know people who've had terrible disappointments in life. And it's interesting because some actually, it causes them to draw closer to God, but others, it causes them to become bitter and to actually abandon their walk with God. I had a, a friend who went through an incredibly tough thing relationally. And uh, it just rocked his relationship with God. It really threw him off course for, for quite a while. And I've seen this pattern frequently. Disappointment leading to disillusionment, leading to doubt, leading to detachment. And this kind of cycle was very likely the case with the man that we're going to talk about and see today in Scripture. Now, we, we know very little about today's character. We don't even know his name. But somewhere along the way, he went down the wrong path. He broke a law, and then he broke another law, and then he broke another law, and eventually he found himself doing things he never thought he would do, and before you know it, he got caught. Some of you have seen this in friends or family members whose lives have kind of spiraled out of control, and you've watched this exact pattern in their life of one sinful choice or one foolish choice just leading them down this path where their life ends up in a place that they never dreamt it would end up. They never hoped it would end up. And he was tried and he was convicted for a crime that was only one crime of many that he had committed. And we, we don't know what he did, but it was serious. It was serious enough that, that this guy, as he stood before a Roman court and a Roman tribunal, he, um, he wasn't good enough just to go serve as a slave in a galley and row a ship because that's what they often did with, with people that were you know, caught in a crime or petty crime. Whatever he did, it was bad enough that he, as he stood in front of this tribunal, was, was sentenced to be executed, to be made a public example of that you don't mess with the Roman government. He was condemned to public execution, and tomorrow was the day. It was happening. Imagine how he would have felt as he sat in the cell waiting for morning, the morning when he would be executed. Imagine that. Now, if you've ever talked to somebody who's found their life spiral into criminal behavior or spiral out of control, there's always a story behind it, isn't there? And there's this, oftentimes there's this feeling where even though, uh, um, you know, I, I used to sing and go uh, do some uh, music in the Youth Correction Center. And the great part about singing there and preaching is you don't have to convince anybody they're a sinner. They kind of know, right? And also they can't leave if you're bad. You have a captive <laughs> audience, you know. 
But imagine how this guy felt, because at the bottom of every one of those things is a story, isn't it? And oftentimes it's the feeling of it's not fair, because it's not, is it? Life isn't fair. And almost always at the bottom of those kind of stories, so, so often there's a broken home, you know? And I imagine this guy thinking, it's not fair. He did some terrible things, but you don't know my story, right? You don't know the pain I'm experiencing. And if there, there was a God, I can see him thinking, if there was a God, where was he when his father beat him, right? Where was God when his mother died while he was still young? Where was God that first time that, that he was so hungry and desperate that he stole that first loaf of bread? And after that, things just kept spiraling. Where was God? And clearly, if there was a God, God wasn't interested in him. God didn't give a rip about him. And on the other side, if there was a God, he's really in trouble and he knows it because he's done some horrible things. He's done some things so bad that, that he realizes that there's probably no hope for him in this life or in whatever comes after life. All he can think about in that situation is his pain the circumstance he finds himself in. And the world felt like it was just small and getting smaller, just closing in on him, right? Because pain has a way of doing that. That when you're in pain, you have so, it's so difficult, isn't it, to pop up and see the bigger picture of life. There's no bigger picture. All you see is these four walls that surround you. All you see is the pain you're experiencing and the situation around you, and you're fixated on that. And it's so hard to think about anything else. And that's where the place, that's the place where this guy found himself. Now, here's the thing. As he lays in the cell, as he has problems thinking about anything other than his tiny little prison, the pain he's experiencing and feeling, as he's fixated on his shrunken world of fear and pain, meanwhile, the greatest drama of history was unfolding just a few hundred yards away. God was actually setting into motion the plan of salvation that had been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years, a plan that would very shortly intersect his life. And just at this moment, a door would open, and a rabbi had just finished up a meal with his closest friends and followers. We know the meal is the Last Supper. It was an incredible time of fellowship. The very last Passover he would celebrate with these guys for this season, for this age. And so the door opened, and if you were watching, you would see this somber group of people as they left, this rabbi and these somber disciples. And they exit the building, and they walk over, and they go up into this beautiful garden on a mount called the Mount of Olives. And that's where we pick up the scripture in Luke chapter 22, in verse 39. And I'm gonna read a bunch of scriptures for you here, this week, here, here today. More, a lot more than I normally read. And what I want you to do is, you've heard this story, if you grew up in church, you've heard this story a thousand times probably. And in that process, sometimes you lose the weight of it. So I put a lot of images behind. Normally we don't have very many or any images. But I put a lot of images behind these scriptures today. 
because I want you to experience and feel it. Or, or for some, if, you're, if you want to, you can even close your eyes as I read and try to picture and feel the weight of this scene, the weight of this drama that's unfolding. It says this in Luke twenty two thirty nine, 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. You see, obedience to the Father's will, obedience to go through what Jesus knew he had to go through wasn't easy for Jesus. And you see this in this scene where even, you know, we know that the, the intense emotion as he prays, and he prays in, in such a way that, that blood vessels burst and even some blood comes out. I mean, talk about intensity and anguish as he knows what's about ready to happen. And see, the, the author of one of the letters further in the New Testament, talks about how we have a high priest, Jesus. We have someone who understands what we go through. He understands the pain we experience. He understands those times where you know the right thing to do, and yet it's so hard to do it. He understands it. He sympathizes with our weakness. He understands temptation. He experienced temptation directly from the devil. He experienced temptation in this moment to say, no, I don't think so. It's not worth it. It says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading him. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Can you imagine the betrayal? Can you imagine the betrayal of being betrayed by one of your closest friends? See, here's the thing. Jesus understands. He sympathizes with you when you have been betrayed and let down by someone who should have been trusted. He gets it. He understands. Verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Even in this moment, Jesus is moved by compassion. Even in this moment, Jesus is others-focused. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. It's cold oftentimes at night. So they kindle a fire 
to stay warm. And Peter, as he peers over and keeps an eye on what's going on in the heartbreak, as he realizes they're trying to condemn Jesus. A servant girl saw him, Peter, there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, and, and the other version, that it tells us he replied with a curse. Man, I don't even know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. See, just hours before this, he had promised Jesus. He had promised Jesus that, that he would never betray him, that he would go to the death for him. And here he is, denying Jesus. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord has spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, cool thing, is in just a week or so, or a couple weeks later, Jesus will ask Peter three times if he loves him. It's one of the most tender passages of Scripture. And then he, Jesus will forgive Peter. And Jesus will commission him. And this story, this familiar story, is, is such a good reminder. If you have blown it over and over and over again, if you have gone back on your word and your promise to Jesus, he understands what it's like to forgive you and he offers forgiveness to you. The story goes on. The night continues. And it just gets worse and worse. 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man, his favorite way of referring to himself, will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He says, you're just trying to trick me into response to justify what I know you're about ready to do. But from now on, things will be different. And he quotes the prophet Daniel. He, he pulls this theme out of the prophet Daniel, a theme they would all know, a theme about the ultimate victory of this one known as the Son of Man. They all asked, are you the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. In other words, you're just trying to trick me. But yes, they said to him, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his very own lips. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar, false testimony and lie, and claims to be Messiah, a king. And so Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. 
And we know from John, he also says, my kingdom is not of this world, right? Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. Galilee is the northern province up here, um, just a ways up from Jerusalem. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. He thought, whew, I'm off the hook. Pass the buck. He's a citizen of this other king. And Herod is this puppet king of Rome. He's an awful man. He's the one who killed John the Baptist because John was rebuking him for stealing his half-brother's wife and marrying her. Messed up situation. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. So basically he was saying, come on, Jesus, perform, perform. Almost like a circus-like environment. Perform for us. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him, neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. They had a custom of every, every year at the Passover festival time to release somebody to the people that maybe had been imprisoned because they, they ticked off Rome, right? But the people knew that they were innocent. So on this occasion, it says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. And we know as we put scriptures together that Jesus at this point was brutally beaten and whipped with Roman whip, cat of nine tails, ripping the flesh off. And probably many in the room have seen the passion of the Christ. If you've seen that, that probably forever changed your viewpoint of this scene, forever changed your viewpoint of the crucifixion of Jesus. I know it did for me. It was a brutal thing, unimaginable thing. With loud shouts, verse 23, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Serene, 
who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Because at this point, Jesus had already lost so much blood that he could barely stagger up the hill. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children, for the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And Jesus flashed forwards and, 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 and again prophesies what will happen to Jerusalem just about 40 years later. Now, here's where the story of our criminal, you remember him? You probably forgot him in the midst of the greatest drama in history unfolding. But he's still there. He's in his cell. He's fixated only on his own pain. He has no idea the events or the significance of the, the events that are going on right around him. He's oblivious to the drama. And then a Roman guard bursts into his cell, hauls him out, places a beam on his shoulder, whips him and says, follow that man. And he takes off carrying the beam of what will become his own execution stake up towards the hill called Golgotha, which means the skull. Luke 23, 32. Two other men. We're going to get a wall built there pretty soon. <laughs> All right. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him, Jesus, there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And there's so much packed into this one word, crucified. It was a humiliating, horrible way to die. People would beg for a speedy death instead. This guy, our character, knew that sometimes it took days for men to die. He'd seen the humiliation. He knows that at the end of this process, his body would be left probably, and when the vultures after the vultures had their pick, he would be drugged down. His body would be drugged to the edge of the city and dumped. He wouldn't get a real burial. He would be dumped in the city dump, a place on the outskirts of town known as Gehenna, which coincidentally Jesus often uses as a title, an allegorical title for hell. And so these two criminals, as, as this is happening to them, they, they would be there just hurling profanities at the crowd. Jesus is silent. They would be cursing. In fact, we know a short period, a couple hundred years before this, during the Maccabean period, these Maccabean martyrs, as they, as they were uh, killed and, and executed, they would call down curses from heaven on the people. And these, these guys would be just cursing the crowd around them, cursing the soldiers. It's a horrible scene. And in the middle of that commotion, in the middle of that noise, in the middle of the vileness of their curses. They hear words that have never been spoken before from a Roman cross. Jesus said, Father, Father. And that got their attention. Wasn't there a strange rumor going around about who this guy said his father was? 
And then the next word that came would, would have just blown their mind. Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The criminals heard Jesus say the unthinkable thing as they're calling down curses on these people that are executing them. Jesus was actually praying and not for himself, for, for mercy or for salvation, but for the people who had crucified him. And he was praying to forgive them and saying they don't know what they're doing. What? They're thinking, of course they know what they're doing. Of course they know what they're doing. It says they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They took his outer robes and divided them up. This is an incredible fulfillment of a prophecy that David wrote into a psalm, a messianic prophecy from almost a thousand years before this. The people stood watching. Everyone would have come out for this spectacle. Everybody would have come out to see this thing that was happening. Jesus was so famous, everybody knew who Jesus was. People stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. See, at last the rulers felt safe around him. You remember every time they would try to catch Jesus, get him in a gotcha, trick him to say something that would turn the people against him. Jesus would just turn it and use their own words right back at him. Jesus was so brilliant, but now they had him right where they wanted him. He couldn't do anything. He was harmless now. They weren't afraid of the crowds anymore because the same crowds that they were afraid of had now turned on him. They'd convinced him to turn on him and say, crucify him. The soldiers, verse 36, also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written, a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate had this written above him in a couple different languages, mainly for the purpose of ticking off the religious leaders because they were always going back and forth. And the, the soldiers are mocking him too. And they offer him this cheap wine vinegar that the soldiers would, would have. And it was almost this fake thing, this mocking ceremony of saying, we're your cupbearers here. They're mocking him. See, the other thing is oftentimes um, in most of the movies and pictures, the crosses are all uh, really high off the ground. And historians think that it's very possible that the Romans actually executed people a lot lower so that you could come up and kind of look him right in the eye. Spit on them. This is a humiliation that Jesus is going through. And see, at this point, for both these criminals, it was just too much. The criminals couldn't stand Jesus like saying, forgive them. It was just too much for them. His passive resignation to all of this, the fact that he wasn't standing there calling down curses on the people, and so they too, at this point, felt compelled. And they turned their fury away from the crowds and away from the soldiers and directed onto Jesus, all their filth, all their vileness. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Matthew tells us that both of the criminals are actually hurling insults at him. These two criminals at this point, our character and this other one, and this one criminal, he, he just unloads, vials, cursing Jesus. 
heaping insults on him. Aren't you supposed to be able to do something about this? If you were a Messiah, this wouldn't be happening to you. If there's a God, this wouldn't be happening to us. The one criminal said, hey, you aren't the Christ. You and God can't save us. He defined God's care through the for him through the circumstances of his life. And as he looked at the circumstances of his life, he quickly concluded, there can't be a God who loves me. I don't think there's a God at all. If there was a God, he was far away, and he didn't care. Now, here's the crazy thing. During this whole little moment, where is God, the God he thinks is so far away? Right beside him. Right there with him in the midst of this. And as these two criminals unload their filth and their curses, our character, he falls silent suddenly. The words, Father, forgive, and something about Jesus pierce into his heart. He, he senses something selfless about him. He realizes this is a righteous man. And in the midst of it, he has this realization. He really is who he says he is. It says this in verse 40. The other criminal rebuked him. This Greek word can mean warn or stop. Our character, he turns over to this other criminal who's unloading all this violence. He says, stop it. Stop it. Wait, we got it wrong. He says, don't you fear God? Since, we are under, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He recognizes that in their situation, it, it makes sense what's happening to them. This isn't God's fault. They're reaping what they sowed. But Jesus, he looks over, he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's like he has the realization that if an innocent man can suffer like a guilty man and can maintain faith in God, the fact that there's a good, kind, loving, heavenly father, shouldn't a guilty man who's suffering be able to maintain faith? He realizes God's not to blame for our situation. God hasn't abandoned us. And he realizes this is Messiah. This is our king. Then he said to Jesus, and these are some of the tenderest words ever written in scripture. He, ten, he turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Not because of anything I've done, but in spite of everything I've done. I'm not asking you. I'm not making promises right now. You don't make promises to clean up your life from a cross, do you? You don't make promises. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be consistent and faithful, and I'm going to quit doing that, and, and you know, this time for real. And... No. There's no he, he has nothing but to call out to Jesus for grace and mercy. Remember me. But I understand, I don't get it. I don't understand why Messiah is suffering and dying, but I know that somehow you are, kind of, you are the king and you will come into your kingdom. Remember me. 
he says. And Jesus turns and answers him. Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. My love and my care for you are not defined by you cleaning your act up. I'm not waiting for you to serve me for 20 years and then maybe we'll give this a shot. My care for you, my love for you are not defined by what's happened to you, by your circumstances. I love you. My grace is available to you. Mercy is available for you. It says it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, oh, the curtain of the temple, that's cool. It's this symbol, amazing symbol, this huge thick curtain, a symbol that we have access now to God, to his presence. If you're in one of our life groups, you will explore this more, but I don't have time to get into it today, but you'll explore this more this week. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said that, he breathed his last. As Winston comes up, we don't normally have a clothing song, but today we're going to close with a song. As he comes up, let me just ask you, have you confused your life circumstances with God's care for you? Is there an area in your life where because of the disappointment in your life, you're allowing that to lead to disillusionment, doubt, detachment? Have you drawn conclusions about God based on your experiences? If so, here's what you need to remember is that your life circumstances do not define God's care for you. The cross defines God's care for you. Your life circumstances do not define. Don't look at your circumstances and because things aren't going great or the opposite, things are going great. And Don't look for that for your security. Don't look for that for your identity and in who you are. And if God loves you, look at the cross that he loved you so much he was willing to give his life for you. This is so important. Don't miss this. Because if you get so wrapped up in your pain, pain that, you, that all you can see is these four little walls, before you know it, if you're not careful, God can be right beside you and you won't even realize it. God can be doing incredible things right next to you and you won't even realize it. You gotta look to the cross, look to what he did. If you allow your circumstances to negatively define your view of God's care for you, Before you know it, you'll miss out on relationship with him. You will not experience in your life the grace, the mercy, the love he's offering. It it won't connect with you. And he offers you that in Jesus. And so really, here's what I want you to do with this this week. I want you to, to begin a habit of defining God's love for you through the cross, not through your circumstances. I want you to respond to God as if, just like Jesus, who suffering more than any of us can imagine, he identifies with with him, with our pain, and yet he knows there's a loving Heavenly Father. 
There's a loving Heavenly Father. I want you to respond as if there's a God who actually loves you in spite of what life has done to you. And for some, you just you need to stop. You need to, to come back. You need to pull back from the little box you've been living in, and you need to look at where's God actually at right now. He's beside me. He's with me. Where's God moving around me? And when you're hurt, trapped in that hurt and pain, you got to realize he's with you. And perhaps the biggest takeaway from this character and this story we looked at today in this amazing account of the most significant events in history as Jesus died and rose again is, is that what we learn from this, this man is that it's never too late to respond to Jesus. For some of you, that's, a, that's been your thing. It's like, I've just gone too far. I've just done this one too many times. And you feel like, can he actually forgive me? It's never too late to respond to Jesus. It's never too late to turn for him for mercy. This story has some incredible significance for me. Because my grandpa, um, he went through this this time and right at the end of his life a couple years ago where he would, uh, it was like, if, if it wasn't so sad, it would have been comical because it was like every three weeks he ended up back in a new rehab center. You know, he'd go home, get home, and then it would take him weeks to recover. And then it seemed like in another week he was back at another rehab. We were like, this is your other home, isn't it? Like your vacation home, bad vacation home. And one time he finally got over it and he got in this new place. We were really excited. It was out here on the Redlands. It was going to work out great for him. And then the next, very next day, he fell and broke his hip. My parents were out of town on a ministry trip, and they said, can you please just call? Can you, can you just go see Grandpa and talk to him? Because we didn't really know where he was at with God. We'd had a lot of conversations and attempts, and it was always a little awkward. He had been a pretty rough man earlier in his life, but we'd seen the softening as he aged and the way he cared for my grandma, who had Alzheimer's. It was beautiful. And so I was able to talk to him and I shared this story with him about the thief on the cross, the fact that, you know, grandpa was such a, a proud man. He probably would have never taken, he, he, he didn't want to take help from anybody, right? Yet I told him about this guy that had lived all this life. And then at the very last moment, he said, just said, Jesus, please remember me. And Jesus offered him grace and mercy and forgiveness. I asked him if he'd ever trusted in Jesus, and he said, I think so. And I asked him if he wanted to know so, and he said yes. And I got to lead him in a prayer to receive Jesus. He went into surgery, got pneumonia, and a week later he was dead. So this has a significant place in my heart. Now, if you would stand right now, we're going to close. We're going to sing a song. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you need to reaffirm your trust in God in the midst of the circumstances you're going through. That maybe there's been some detachment in your life and you just need to, to, to look over and go, oh, you're right here, you're with me. You love me and you need to feel the weight of that. You need to experience the depth of his love. For some of you, maybe you need to call out to Jesus for the first time. You're, you're, you're like this guy, life didn't go the way you wanted. You've been stiff-arming God for a long time. And today maybe is the day that you receive the forgiveness that he's offering you. 
Some of you, you need to share this story with someone in your life this week. You need to invite them to come to church. If that's you in the room and you want to respond to this, if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes. You can, you can respond by praying and, and repeating after me if you'd like, either quietly or out loud in your heart. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I invite you to, to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me. I want to turn my life to you and live for you. Welcome me into your family. Thank you for dying and rising again for me. I believe you're the son of God. And Lord, for the rest of my friends, would you just let them, let them define your care for them by the cross, Lord, and what you did for them. Let's sing and let's remember what he did for us.